Pastor Ben has asked me to relay to you, uh, this week he's on an important mission trip to the west campus of our church. And I was out there earlier this morning, and trust me, they need it. So you have me. <laughs> Glad to be with you. We're going to start by reading a section from our psalm. It starts in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Babies, we love babies. If I were to take a poll of this room, favorable or unfavorable about babies, it would pretty much be unanimous. Everyone would say, I like babies. And for the one or two people who voted against it, what's wrong with you? We, we like babies, they're, they're cute, they're fun, they're adorable. Some people would say it's just that we have a biological impulse to like babies, but that doesn't explain much. Because even if you, even if you were to show different people how they respond to babies, they respond differently. So if you take a baby and give that child to a 16-year-old boy or a girl who's been babysitting for a long time, they're gonna know exactly what to do with that baby. They know how to feed the baby, talk to the baby, hold the baby. But if you were to give a baby to a 16-year-old version of me, covered in Axe body spray, I would have no idea what to do with that child. I'm gonna be like, the neck is so flimsy, what do I do with this thing, it's so fragile. We don't know what to do with babies always, but we love babies. Babies are popular. You know, we know that they are human and they're worth uh, protecting and they're cute. But this goes to a whole nother level when people have their own babies. When, when people have a child and their family, it goes from babies are cute and I like them to look at this precious child. Everyone should love my baby. Look at my baby. And we have the ability to do that more than any people in human history because we have social media. We have Instagram. We have Facebook. And what happens is people are just broadcasting their babies to the world. And I think you would agree with me about this. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's too much. It's too much. We're showing too many pictures of our kids. I, I'm going to let you in on a secret. And you probably know this on the one hand experientially. But on the other hand, if you have kids yourself, this might be shocking to you. But other people don't care about pictures of your baby. <laughs> At least not the way that you do. Like maybe they want to see your baby and they think your baby's cute but it's not the same as with you. Do they need to see pictures of your baby 45 times a week? No, they don't need to see that many pictures of your baby. And it's ridiculous. People are like, you know, look at my baby wearing a beret. Look at my baby wearing sunglasses and reading Shakespeare. How can you even read sunglasses? Wait, Shakespeare, when you have sunglasses on. It just doesn't work. Why? Why would you do that? People are like, you're not gonna believe what my baby did this week. She burped, it was adorable. Now I believe you, babies burp, it's what, it's what happens. But why do they respond like this? Well, it's because if you have a child, you are attached to that child. You have a relationship with that child. So you are gonna be so enthralled with them and, and love them so much because you have been there with them. Now, knowing that, I can stand in front of you today and rationally and objectively know that you would not get the same emotional reaction looking at a picture of my family or my children as I do. Now, I love my kids because they're mine and I don't need to show you a picture of them to have you know 
that I love my kids. And so to prove a point, I'm not gonna do the normal pastor thing where everyone's like, hey, here's a picture of my family. I saw Randy did it last week when he was here, him and his perfect hair, he did it. <laughs> but to prove a point to you, I do not need to show you a picture of my boys. Who am I kidding? Look at these guys, they're incredible. They are adorable. Geniuses, both of them. They look just like their mom, it's ridiculous. Eli and Theo are my two boys. Eli's five, Theo is 19 months old, and I love these boys so much, and I admit that my reaction to things that they do is sometimes over the top and irrational. You know, when they do anything, Theo is at the stage where he started, started to say words now, and when he speaks, my wife and I freak out about it. Eli's at the stage where he's reading. When he reads a new book, we freak out, like he's just won a Nobel Peace Prize. He hasn't. He just read Pete the Cat Went to School or something, you know, but we're freaking out as a result. Anything that they do, we get so excited about. And the reason for this is pretty simple. I am attached to my boys because I have been with them from the beginning. Their life is literally an extension of my wife and I's love for each other. We love each other, these boys came into the world as a result. I was there when we found out that my wife was pregnant with both of them. I watched them grow in her belly. I was there when both of them were born and I didn't cry at all. You cried, I didn't cry, I was just there but I saw them be born. I've watched them at each stage successively get older. And because of that, they are my boys. I love them, I would do anything for them. I've been there with them from the beginning. I know what they need right now. I have visions and hopes of what their life could look like in the future. They are mine. Now, that love that a parent has for their child from being with them from the beginning is what the psalmist has in mind when he is reading what we've read today. Let's look at a few of the things that David says that the Lord does for us. My, my first point, by the way, is that God knew you in the womb from the very beginning. Some of the things he says, he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, talking about artfully creating this child. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. David said this thousands of years ago, and David knew where babies came from. That's not an accident. Your grandparents knew where babies came from. Everyone else did. But there are things that we can see now in the formation of a child in the womb that David had no idea about. He was saying, God, you were knitting me together. You were artfully making me at this time. But now we can actually look at the development of a child at each stage. I actually want you to look at some of the things that it takes for a child to go on their journey through the womb. The first one is this. On day one, instant one, something happens. I'm not gonna say what that something is because some of you parents didn't sign up for your kids to hear uh, details. But on day one, something happens and you end up with a fertilized egg at the beginning. And that is a single-celled organism at that point, at conception, that is one cell. And what happens is that instantly, that cell knows how it needs to start dividing and organizing for the future. By week one, the zygote implants at the uterine lining and it's gonna be there for the nine months of its development. By week three, this is pretty insane, that single cell has divided and organized and we can actually detect a heartbeat already by week three. Just in, in 20, 21 days, you can detect a heartbeat. The cells are already forming for the kidneys and blood and the nerves. By week four, you could see arms and legs visibly forming and the left and right brain hemispheres coming into existence. Jump ahead to weeks nine and 10, that thing that started as a single cell just a few weeks before is now one billion cells. 
organized and moved into all the different places it needs to be. At that point, the child can suck on their thumb, stretch, sigh, grasp at objects. Weeks 11 to 14, you can, you can see that the baby, the, the fetus in the womb is starting to play, make facial expressions. Mom can start to feel the baby moving at this point. Weeks 15 and 16, the baby's sensitive to touch, can feel, can feel pain, can feel things as they happen. And often when we're looking at ultrasounds, we can see the baby start to make speaking movements with their vocal cords, they're practicing. Weeks 19 to 20, by 21, by, by week 19, that baby's heartbeat has happened 20 million times. And with help, a child at that age can often survive outside the womb. Now there's more that happens in fetal development as the child gets older. We don't have to go to all the details, but what I'm trying to impress upon you is that David had in mind that God was there from the very beginning. Before the parents even know what's happened, before anyone else knows, God was there, artfully weaving and designing. He was there with you from the very, very beginning. There's an interesting little wrinkle in this passage that was, uh, it was vexing to me when I first saw it. He says, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What's he talking about? I don't think my mother's womb was in the depths of the earth unless my mom was hiding in a cave or something when, when she was pregnant. What does it mean? Well, it's a obvious link to Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter two, God has made everything in the world. He has not, not yet made a man. And what it says he does is that he took the man, he formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living creature. God formed from the dust of the earth, breathed his breath of life, and it became a living being. Now, I, I want you to make note here that what David's talking about, about what's happening in a mother's womb, is a human life. God breathed, God inspired, designed, in the mind and the heart and the art of God has made this child in his image. When a child is in the womb, that is a human child. God has made them from the beginning. And if there's one thing I could take from this passage that, that I think you should know, is that if God had you in mind from the very beginning, was watching you from the time you were a single cell dividing into the many other cells that ended up eventually becoming all of who you are, you don't have any excuse to think that you are not valuable or important. If you find yourself at any point thinking lowly of yourself, I just don't like myself very much, I'm not worthy of love, I'm not important, I'm not good enough, how insulting is that to the God who made you? To, in his mind, thinking through creatively, saying that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, when David says, I was fearfully and wonderfully made, he says, your works are great. Usually in the Old Testament, when it's talking about God's works, it's talking about the miracles that he did in the birthing of Israel. So we're talking about God sending the 10 plagues to Egypt. We're talking about him parting the Red Sea, sending literal bread from heaven, which is a dream I've had for a long time, hoping that God would send me Taco Bell from heaven. It hasn't happened yet. But that's the kind of thing that's being described as your works, these miracles that you do. David's saying that my formation in the womb was a miracle. It's a miracle of your works. And I think about if my boys get to the age when they're older, if they ever start to talk lowly about themselves, about like, I'm not important, I'm not good enough. Do you know how insulted I would be if I heard that? The, 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 those boys, their life is everything to me. My, my entire life has changed because of them and I love them so much and I was there with them from the beginning. I will not let them talk about themselves that way. That's the same way that God thinks about you. You were on his mind, in his art, in his heart, and you were artfully, wonderfully, fearfully made. That's who you are. There's no excuse for you to think of yourself in the, any other way. God knew you from the womb. If God know, knew you from the womb, that also means that he knows you now. God knows you now. 
And that also means that God knows what you need right now. We tend to be pretty good at, at a given moment of knowing what we want. We're not very good at knowing what we need. I will make an exception to this. You know, we often are good at knowing what we want, but there's a scene from the movie The Notebook. Are there any Notebook fans in here? I'm sure there's a few. So in the movie The Notebook, basically what happens is there's a guy and a girl that love each other. The guy goes off to war. The girl thinks that the guy dies, so she goes and gets engaged to another person, but then guy number one never died. He comes back, hence the intrigue of the movie. So at one point they're talking, and Ryan Gosling says to Rachel McAdams, he says, what do you want? And she says, well, you know, I'm engaged to this other guy, and it will hurt his feelings if we do anything differently, but I'm glad that you're back. And he says, what do you want? And she says, no, but my, my family's involved in this. His family, we're linked together. All this stuff's happening. And he says, what do you want? And she says, it's not that simple. And he says, what do you want? That's the scene. And after watching it, you're welcome. You don't even need to see it anymore. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Not expecting that. Anyway, every guy in this room that's married is like, I've had this conversation with my wife before about where we go to dinner. What do you want? Well, you know, I could do burgers or maybe, maybe Italian. Okay, let's go there. No, no, I want to do Mexican food. What do you want? Anyway, that thing aside, we generally know in the moment what we want, but we do not know what we need. My five-year-old son is very good at telling me what he wants at a given moment. He has no idea what he needs. It's the reason he needs parents. You know, our kids, if they got everything they wanted all the time, wouldn't survive very long. They need parents. They need people that know better than them. You do not know what you need. You don't. You do not have the capacity to fully know in space and time what you need at a given moment. You might know what you want, but God is the one who knows what you need. So if that's true, if that's true and God knows what you need, then what kind of response should that bring from us? In verses 17 and 18, David says this. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. David says, God, your thoughts are so far beyond anything that I have. I don't know what I need, but you do. The, your thoughts, they number more than the grains of sand on the earth. Now, I've tried to do that math of how many grains of sand there are on the earth, and my brain started hurting. There's too many. But God knows all of it. He knows everything. Last week, we read about how God knows everything. He knows when you go and you come back, when you stand up and when you sit down, he knows everything. And so if God actually knows what you need, we need to chase after his thoughts. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. I want to know them as well. Does that mean that you could know everything that God knows? Of course not. You don't have that capability. But God has very clearly revealed a lot of things to us about himself and about what he expects from us. God knows what you need, so you best figure out what God has said to you about what you ought to do. God is the one who knows what you need, so we need to chase after his thoughts. There's another snippet from this psalm that I'm going to read to you in a moment. I'm not putting it on the screen, but it is a kind of hilarious heel turn in the passage. So he's been reflecting on God. Your works are great. You see me everywhere. You were there with me in my mother's womb. Uh, your thoughts are, are so wonderful. And then he says this, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So I have this vision in my head of David is sitting down, either looking at his sheep in the field or he's looking over his kingdom as King David, and he's waxing eloquent about how wonderful God's works are. Your works are wonderful. You knew me in my mother's womb. You've done it so delicately. Your thoughts are vast. But if you would slay your enemies, <laughs> he goes to the next part of his diary. 
It seems like a strange turn, but what's David getting at here? These verses are connected with verses 17 and 18. He says, God, your thoughts are where I need to put myself. I can't chase them all down, but those are the things that I need to be thinking. And he goes back though and says, there are these enemies of you, God. He calls them men of blood, men of violence. He says, they speak against you with malicious intent. They take your name in vain. I want to hate the things that you hate. I want to veer away from the things that would take me against you. If you were to follow what any culture of the world would tell you to think or say or do, it will move you away from the thoughts of God. David is clearly saying to God, your thoughts are what I wanna chase after. Please protect me from these other people that would pull me from you. It goes along with the part of the Lord's Prayer where it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. David's saying, God, lead me not to those who would tempt me. Let me count them my enemies, the things that they do. I wanna think thoughts after yours. God knows what you need right at this moment, and so we need to build into our lives the habit of trying to think after God's thoughts, avoiding those who would pull you away from the Lord. This is incredibly hard. As you develop relationships with people that you care about and people that otherwise you like spending time with, there are times, though, that a person that you love will pull you away from the Lord if you are spending too much time with them in the wrong context. We need to be careful. Chase after the thoughts of the Lord. Avoid the thoughts of the world. So if God knew you from the womb and God knows you now, that also means that God knows where you need to go. God knows exactly where you need to go. He said this, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was even one of them. He says, Lord, when I was in the womb and you were weaving me together, your book had all of my days written before a single one of them happened. God knows what's coming in your future and he knows where you need to go. This is a extremely challenging part of life, not knowing what's gonna happen in the future. Wouldn't it be so convenient if you knew what your life would look like a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, but we don't. We are trapped in the present. You'll find the future soon enough when you get there, but the Lord knows it and he knows which direction you need to go. But that means though, that at moments where you wanna know who am I gonna marry, what job am I gonna get? Am I gonna get a promotion that I want? What's gonna happen? Am I gonna make money in the future? These are, are good questions, but ultimately those are in God's hands. Jesus says it this way. He said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. All these other things will be taken care of. It doesn't mean that you're gonna get what you want. It means focus on the kingdom and the Lord will take care of you. God knows what's coming in your future, and so you don't need to worry about your future. Do you plan for your future? Yes. Do you prepare for your future? Yes. Do you worry about it? No, because God is the one who has those things in his hand. So God knew you from the womb. God knows you right now, what you need. He also knows where you need to go. So what's the final response to all of this? David's been reflecting on all these things. He says, God, you know everything about me. I can't hide from you. You know where I'm going. You saw me from the beginning. You see me now. The future is in your hands. So what do I do? And he responds this way in verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David, knowing that God knows everything, knowing that God loves him, has made him fearfully and wonderfully, completes his thought by saying, God, search my heart, know me, show me if there's any way where I am moving away from you. Show me any spot where I'm falling short and steer me back toward where you want me to go. Steer me back. This is a prayer that you and I need to learn to pray. 
I think this is a thing that if you were to implement it in your life regularly, would change your life. If you would wake up each morning, go to bed each night, and ask the Lord, honestly, transparently, say, Lord, search me, show me what's going on under the surface, and change my direction. God will change your life. God will change your habits. Now, I have to warn you a couple warnings about that. This is a dangerous prayer to pray regularly. If you ask God, search my heart, show me what's wrong under the surface, he's going to do it. He's going to, now, by the way, none of your stuff is hidden from God in the first place, by the way. You know, you're not giving God permission to search you, he already knows. He knows everything that's there. I, I saw a TV commercial, or it might have been a show, when I was young and it stuck with me. A boy comes into his house after playing and he wants to eat food and the mom says, wash your hands first. And so he holds up his hands and says, look, they're clean. And the mom knowingly comes up and grabs his wrist and turns it around and it's just caked in mud on the backside. You can't pull a fast one on God. He knows what's going on under the surface already. That exercise of saying, Lord, search me and change me, that is one, giving God permission to work in your life, but it's also asking him, show me. Don't show yourself, because you already know, show me and then change me. The other warning I would give you from this is to pray that prayer and say, God, search me and change me. That is a painful prayer. Sometimes God getting rid of the things that need to be gotten rid of in your life hurts. I went to the dentist this week, I don't recommend it. <laughs> Some of you are like, I haven't had a cavity in 20 years. Well, good for you, okay? I love Skittles, okay? So I went there, and when I was there, they had to drill into one of my teeth to get rid of some of the rot and cavity that was there. Now, did I enjoy that time sitting in the dentist's office? Are you crazy? No, it was terrible. But did it need to happen? Yes, it was painful. The dentist identified what was wrong in my mouth. He took a drill. He hurt me very bad and hurt my feelings in the process. And by the time it was over, though, I felt better. My mouth was closer to where it needed to be. When you pray that prayer and say, God, search me, show me what's going on under the surface, change me, he will do it. It might not feel good when it happens. When your stuff comes to the surface and you start to see it and you have to confess it and repent in front of other people, that is a painful process, but God will do it. If you ask him, search me, show me. God, you knew me from the beginning. You know me now. I want to follow you into the future. Search me and change me. That's my challenge for you today, to go to the Lord and ask him regularly, God, search me, show me, change me, lead me into your way of who you want me to be in the long-term future, not just a year from now or 10 years from now, but into eternity. Change me. That's available to you, but you have to make yourself open to it.